This is Guns and Butter. can be uh, uh, measured, which can be uh, identified by the number of articles, by the way it was started, and so on. The Greek crisis has been invented essentially by, uh, we say, to define the thing by the city media, the London city media, FT and so on, and taken over by uh, most of the Anglo-Saxon specialized press on, on economic and, and finance, in order to distract attention from what was going on in the UK and later in the US. And of course, it was a double, uh, double benefit because it was also a way to put the trouble into the eurozone, and therefore to prevent further deterioration of the British pound or the, uh, the US dollar. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Frank Bianchi. Today's show: from the Greek tragedy to the Battle of the Bank of England and the U.S. Fed. Frank Bianchi is Director of Research and Coordinator of the Global Europe Anticipation Bulletin. Each month, the bulletin brings its unique analyses of the upcoming stages of the collapse of the world order created after 1945, as well as numerous strategic recommendations for decisions in the political, economic, and financial fields. Mr. Bianchi is also Director of Research at Leap Europe 2020, the European Laboratory of Political Anticipation. Europe 2020 is dedicated to anticipating European political developments and was developed in partnership with many different organizations, including research centers and individual researchers. The Europe 2020 website provides support to innovative initiatives aimed at upgrading the European Union's capacity to face 21st century challenges. Today we discuss the possible breakup of a period which began two or three hundred years ago with the beginning of European global domination and the birth of Anglo-Saxon financial domination, the problems in Greece, and the much larger problems looming in the UK and the US. Frank Bianchi, welcome. Thank you, welcome, and very glad to be with you again. Uh, when the bulletin began addressing what you refer to as a global systemic crisis, you were originally referring to events that reflected a collapse of the world we have known since 1945, inherited from the Second World War. But the recent bulletin is now calling into question a breakup of a period which began two or three hundred years ago with the beginning of European global domination and the birth of Anglo-Saxon financial domination, first only in London and then jointly with New York. What are the numerous signs that this massive shift is taking place? Well, you have uh, three or four indicators which are showing, in our opinion, that we are really uh, going away from... from um, kind of world order, let's call it this way, uh, which, as you said, was set up uh, when the Europeans started to colonize uh, the world in the uh, 17th century and 18th century. Uh, just, I will give you a few examples. Uh, one of them is the fact that uh, in the long history of the oldest uh, world central bank, uh, the, the Bank of England, uh, it's the first time uh, since 1695, I think, that they exist, that uh, their interest rates are so low, close to zero. Uh, this has never happened, ever, in British history. Uh, 
when you think of all the wars and, and, and troubles that this country has been facing in, in, uh, since uh, the 17th century, you can imagine that to get out of the chart uh, made, for, made for including 300 years of, of uh, bank interest history, it means that we are really into something which is extraordinarily rare. Uh, in terms of multi-secular trends. Um, I can take another example. If you just cross the channel, uh, you go to France and you look at uh, uh, La Banque de Dépôt et Consignation, which is the, the uh, financial arm of the French state since uh, the early 19th century. Uh, and since this time, so uh, there have been wars and revolutions, invasions, defeats, and so on in France, never ever this financial arm, this Banque de Dépôt, has ever had a loss. It was the case last year. First time in its 200 years history. Um, another example, which then we go out of Europe, we go to Brazil. And uh, Brazil is a very interesting country because, for many reasons, but one of them is that uh, in its history it's only had uh, four uh, main foreign trade partners. The first one was, of course, the Portuguese, Portugal, when uh, they, 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 in fact, uh, created the Brazil colony. Then, it became, uh, during the 19th century, early 19th century, uh, UK, because British were becoming the, the global power. Then the U.S. took over British, the UK as the main trade partner for, uh, Portugal, for Brazil uh, in the 1930s. And last year, who became the first trade partner of Brazil? China. I mean, when you just take these three examples, uh, they are telling a story. They are telling a story that we are definitely moving to something else and the world we have known not only since 1945 but in fact since let's say the uh, the end of the of the 18th century uh, early 19th century uh, that's what we we have been in fact we have found out in the past uh, 16 18 months that the crisis was in fact going much deeper than what we were thinking at first now frank you mentioned a fourth point you mentioned the low interest rates in Britain, and then you mentioned uh, the bank in France, and then uh, Brazil's trading partners. Was there a fourth uh, a leg to this uh, huge economic shift? Yes, 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 yes. There is a fourth point, of course. And the fourth point is something uh, which is linked with uh, the share of the global GDP of China and India. In fact, till the... Uh, end of the 18th century, China and India were representing about half of the world GDP. And it's only during the 19th century, and with an acceleration, the more the century was, uh, was going on, till, in fact, 30 years ago, that constantly the, the GDP share of India and China went down till the level of uh, something like 15 to 20 percent, uh, the, the combined GDP. And in the recent 20 years, this trend, so which another multi-secular trend, has reversed. And right now, their combined GDP is heading to 30%. And it's slowly but surely, since the last 20 years, moving up again. Uh, so when you look at the larger picture, 
it looks like uh, the last 150 years, 200 years, were like a, a beep in the curve where India and China were representing about half of world GDP. Then 450 years, 200 years, it went down. And since 20, 30 years, it's going up again to, to the, probably to this level of 50% of GDP if we look at the trends uh, which are right now occurring. So it's a fourth element uh, showing that we are going out of this period of time which uh, and the, the, the decrease of the share of the Chinese and Indian GDP was directly linked with the colonization uh, process uh, started in the 18th century. I see. So looking from this point of view, you're looking at more like uh, centuries instead of decades. Absolutely. I mean, the decades are there, so the change uh, about the uh, uh, U.S. Centered world uh, coming after 1945. We are definitely getting out of this period of time, but in fact, we are we are getting out of something much bigger or much older, which is basically the uh, uh, European uh, centered world, uh, then 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 U.S. centered world, which were kind of which was a kind of uh, uh, relay, in fact, uh, from the European ones, which started in the uh, 17th century, 18th century. What do you think about the bank bailouts? Have the bank bailouts simply prolonged and deepened the debt crisis? In other words, uh, do you think that the bank bailouts will make the inevitable debt crisis become far greater in scope and devastation than if they had simply allowed the banks to fail? And secondly, are you surprised that they've been able to keep the bubble pumped up this long? Well, the, the, the bank bailouts have, have been made in a way that they will just prolong the crisis. Uh, of course, it was difficult to leave the banks fall apart in 2008 uh, and just uh, sit on the, on the side for the government. But there were means, different means to do that. And what has been chosen uh, almost everywhere is to, in fact, bail them out without any condition. And therefore, we are now, and in the U.S. in particular, you have now a much a smaller number of much bigger banks, which uh, when we know that the first issue, the first frame came from the fact that there was already too big to fail banks, uh, which created the situation. So in fact, the, the, there is in the UK or in US right now, and you saw in Europe, some, but in a lesser extent, uh, much bigger banks, which have not changed significantly the way they operate, neither the balance sheet. Uh, so, in fact, the situation is more dangerous today than it was two or three years ago. Um, the second aspect is that uh, the massive, historically, uh, uh, without any precedent, the massive bailout uh, of public money uh, put into the banking system, of course, generated a situation where the banks uh, could survive uh, and can survive right now because they have been given so much money uh, that uh, something else would have been very surprising. But as we said uh, 18 months ago, two years ago, now they have put the governments in their situation, in the situation they were two years ago, the banks themselves. The governments are now in difficulty to find the money because they gave so much to the banks without anything coming back. And especially one thing which is not coming back is the fact that the banks convinced the government that they should be bailed out because this was the only way to have the economy restarting. But we are now uh, 18 months or almost two years after uh, the bond crisis started to occur, 
and uh, all over the world, uh, we don't see a significant uh, recovery happening, and uh, the uh, tax received from the states are still and keeping on uh, being depleted or even uh, uh, collapsing in some cases and so on. So, in fact, uh, the bankers made a promise to the government, which was false. By saving the banks, they didn't save the economy. We think that we are right now in this very specific situation where everybody is waiting for something to happen in the economic side, and we don't see any significant move anywhere. Well, then, do you think that uh, if the banks had not been bailed out, that it would have somehow shortened the, lessened the crisis? Well, the question, I, I think the question was not that much to, uh, to bail them out or not. The question was how to bail them out. Uh, I mean, they have, been, they have been given a blank check. Uh, and we see very well now the difficulty to, to pass any uh, significant uh, legislation about controlling the banks or taxing the banks or getting them to try to, to behave differently. I mean, uh, the Goldman Sachs example is the best one. They are now, of course, uh, the SEC is uh, putting them in uh, accusation for what they did with some of the uh, subprime uh, products, financial products, and so on. But, I mean, uh, essentially, we have seen the bankers and the bank do what they have been doing for, for the last 20 years, uh, and they kept on doing it in the last 18 months. So there was a need to prevent a collapse of the banking system. That is no doubt about it. But the question was that it should not have been done in a way that to, to, to preserve and to save the banking system as we knew it in 2008. And unfortunately, everywhere, that's what has been done. The, you know what I mean? That the bailout saved the system the way it was, not save the system point by, by changing the system. Uh, in the meantime, it was trying to, to prevent any collapse of any significant or big institution. And that's where the politicians, uh, well, regulators uh, as well, but politicians, first of all, didn't have the courage to, uh, to just tell the bankers, now, guys, uh, we have to, to have a new, completely new story. Right, exactly. They just gave them free money with no strings attached. Yeah, and they said, well, we believe the bankers who told us, if, we, if you save us, we will save the economy. And they have been saved, but the economy is not saved. No, not at all. Uh, we, we mentioned that in previous interviews, and we are seeing that regularly in, in, the, in the pages of Gibb. The point is that we don't have politicians which have uh, either sufficient independence from the banking lobbies or sufficient understanding of the financial and economical uh, processes to be able to really fight the bankers or the bankers' lobbies where they should be, which is on, on the field uh, where they operate. I'm speaking with Frank Bianchi, Director of Research of the Global Europe Anticipation Bulletin. Today's show, From the Greek Tragedy to the Battle of the Bank of England and the U.S. Fed. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. You write that the general election in Britain this coming May 2010 will leave the U.K. in a Greek-style situation with regard to public finances. What do you mean? What is, what is the crisis brewing in Great Britain that could be set off by this coming election? Well, in what you said, there are several points. First, 
And we have been seeing that for months. Uh, we were among the first ones two years ago, saying that the public finances in the states will be taken into a big mess because of uh, this bailout and the fact that the economy will not recover, as they think. So we are there. But for months, we have been saying there is no Greek crisis. That's the first point. There is a Greek problem. The Greek problem has been a very long one in the EU. For, for, for 40 years, we have left Greece doing... Uh, I mean, completely ridiculous and, and uh, absurd uh, management of this country because nobody was, in fact, uh, paying attention and was caring. So there is a problem with Greece, a problem of governance, a problem of management, uh, and so on and so on. But in terms of size, in terms of, of all about the depth size and about the size of the Greek economy within the Eurozone or within the EU, there is nothing which can be called a Greek crisis, or at least nothing which can legitimate to have the Financial Times or the New York Times making almost every day one of their main articles on the topic for the past three months. It's like if we are seen from Europe, we are taking Arkansas or, or whatever, a state of this size, and trying to make a, a, a first-page news every day about a crisis happening in Arkansas uh, and making it a big crisis for the whole dollar era. area. So you, you see what I mean? I mean that's First thing of all, the Greek crisis is not a fact. It's, it's a media or uh, it's information operation or manipulation information. It's aiming at making people look somewhere else than where problems are really occurring right now. Uh, to consider that Greece can be a problem for the Eurozone or to consider that Greece can be a problem for uh, general uh, public finances in the world is absolutely ridiculous when you look at the size of the country and its economy. So, having said that, why is there a use of, of a Greek crisis concept? The first one has been for uh, one key reason, trying to weaken the euro. And that was the interest of, of course, we can imagine in the U.S., Washington, or New York for uh, protecting the dollar value and so on, but first of all, most of all, from the city, U.K. and London. Because you have, noticed, you have noticed that in the past month, E-Zero was going down. There was another currency going even faster down. was was the pound, British pound. But because of the Greek crisis, nobody was taking care or speaking a lot about what was happening to the British currency and the British economy situation. The second element is that uh, the two main uh, countries which, are, uh, which require to, to find on the markets and the financial markets the biggest amount of money in 2010 and in 2011 and most probably in 2012 as, as well are the U.S. and U.K. So if you look at an absolute value, not in relative value, but in absolute value, the two countries which need to find the most money to, find, to finance the deficit, the public deficit, are UK and US. Again, in order not to have people focusing on that aspect, you need to have somewhere, somehow, something else which will attract people's attention. And there is nothing better than uh, to take in the side or in the, on the side of your competitor or adversary or whatever, which is the case of the Eurozone, when you look at the question of finance and monetary issues, to find a weak point of there and to focus attention on this weak point and not to let one second 
this attention go away by every day, every single day, trying to, to focus it again and again and again. I think that what has been done in the past three months with the question of the Greek crisis, mostly by the British press and very much also by the uh, uh, financial specialized press in the U.S. Uh, now, when we look at the reality, what do we see? As I said, we have two countries which have huge needs to fund the deficits in absolute value, U.K. and U.S. And one of them is very weak because it doesn't have the size, uh, economically speaking, politically speaking, strategically speaking, and so on, uh, of the other one, so it's U.K. compared to the U.S. It has a very low level of exportation. It has a collapsing uh, receipt regarding its financial, uh, its, its public uh, spending. The receipts and the incomes from the states are really in a very bad situation, decreasing and decreasing. That's why one week ago, the British uh, government has been obliged to recognize that its deficit for the last 12 months is hitting a level which has never been seen since 1945. By the way, this information was absolutely unnoticed on the main media which were focused once again about a Greek uh, detail that the budget deficit of last year was not 12.9, but 13.4 of the GDP, which, which is, uh, I mean, a ridiculous aspect of the Greek situation. While having the UK getting into uh, a deficit which has never been seen since 1945, uh, that's, uh, that's a real uh, interesting and, and significant element. So, uh, the point about the question of the UK is that the Greek element was taken and used for the past months to hide the fact that the UK was getting into the same direction as Greece, but in a much bigger volume and a much faster uh, speed. And of course, because the elections are coming, and that uh, the city as well as the British government were trying to prevent that anything could erupt before the election. British government wants to try to make people believe that that the economy is going on, that uh, finally his management of power was good, and, and, and so on and so on. Classical situation of a, of a government before an election uh, coming in a few days. Uh, but what we believe, because of what I was saying, is that after May 6th, we are going to see a complete uh, chaos, politically speaking, because of this unparliament perspective, which has even been stronger since we wrote the last Dib uh, uh, 10 days ago because of, of Nick Clegg's uh, very good uh, participation in the two public debates. And with this parliament, the situation for UK is going to be extremely complex because with no clear political leadership, then the question of the value of the pound and the situation of the British economy and its public deficit is going to be put uh, on the table. And then there will be no way to hide anymore that uh, UK is definitely uh, the one following the supposed to be Greek crisis. So, Frank, you're saying then that the media coverage of the Greek crisis was very propagandistic in that it way exaggerated the crisis in it, Greece. It was totally propagandistic. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, we have been regularly showing that the way the Financial Times, for instance, which I think has been the leading uh, uh, media operator in this propaganda operation. I don't know the exact figure, but I can tell you that if you check the first page of the EFT of the past three months, I doubt that you can find one single day where Greece was not on the first page. 
And when you remember the way the supposed to be crisis started the turn of the, of the year, it was when the FT told the story told by Goldman Sachs and Paulson, well, to one guy and one bank, which uh, in the U.S. you know now are under direct uh, juridical prosecution by your, uh, the SEC, these two told the FT that the Greeks tried to sell bonds to the Chinese and the Chinese didn't want to buy them. This made the top page of the FT. The next day, it was proved to be false. And the FT just ran a small information saying it was false. But the thing was large. And that has been, it has never ended up in the past three months since uh, that uh, initial, uh, initial uh, kickoff of the Greek crisis uh, situation. So it's not a, a conspiracy theory operation for me. It's something clear which can be uh, uh, measured, which can be uh, identified by, by the number of articles, by the way it was started, and so on. The Greek crisis has been invented essentially by, uh, we say, to, to define the thing by the city media, the London city media, FT and so on, and taken over by uh, most of the Anglo-Saxon specialized press on, 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 on economic and, and finance, in order to distract attention from what was going on in the UK and later in the US. And, of course, it was a, a double, uh, double benefit because it was also a way to put the trouble into the Eurozone and, therefore, to prevent further deterioration of the, the British pound or the, uh, or the US dollar. Yes, that's interesting. Uh, the coverage is the same here in California. Even today, there was a, a very big story about the Greek crisis. Yeah, imagine, as if California didn't have as many problems of more importance for the U.S., for instance, than, than Greece, which is a country which, let's say very honestly, for the Eurozone and Europe, is absolutely a totally uh, secondary, if not third-level uh, issue and problem. Is the Greek problem a sign of an upcoming Eurozone crisis? Let, let me summarize the thing about the Greek uh, case in about the Greek case in the Greek case. have been, in my opinion, uh, not our opinion, used uh, and overinflated um, because it was helpful for, to serve two objectives. One, to hide the fact that, in fact, those were going and were facing and were going to face even more in the coming months a big difficulty to fund their deficits. Uh, public deficits are the countries which have huge needs in terms of absolute value, and these are the UK and then the US. And the second element was to put the finger on the weakness of one of the competitors uh, to get the money, to get this available money in the world, which was the Eurozone. So that, was, that were the two reasons why the Greek case was chosen and in fact created as a crisis uh, by the British media and, and the uh, Anglo-Saxon media in general, in general, because it was serving these two purposes. Now, you write in the bulletin that financing requirements exceed available funds, that money is not available in unlimited quantities, and that therefore the nations with the most funding needs, like particularly the United States, there's not enough money around for them to borrow, whereas the smaller countries like uh, that you've mentioned, Greece, or Dubai, or, or wherever, they could actually, there's enough money to maybe for them to borrow, but in the case of the bigger deficits or the bigger needs, that there's actually not enough money out there. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. 
this analysis goes against uh, this idea of uh, GDP, uh, debt to GDP ratio as the usual way to look at who will get uh, saved and who will not get saved, uh, because the GDP, debt GDP ratio uh, only works when you have more money available than what is needed. Because as soon as you get into the, this, the other situation, where more money is needed by more actors than what is currently available uh, on the market, then you get into a completely different story. The difference is made between whose needs are bigger than what is available and those whose needs are smaller than what is available. I, we take the example of somebody uh, who has two friends, one uh, who needs 200 euros uh, and can give very expensive uh, 1,000 euros uh, gold watch uh, as a guarantee, and the other one who only needs uh, 20 euros but can only give a 30 euro uh, uh, worth uh, watch uh, as a guarantee. The uh, debt-to-GDP ratio process will say that you are going to give your money to uh, the guy who can give uh, the gold watch as a guarantee and not to the one with a small, uh, cheap watch. But in fact, when you look at the uh, amount of money available, if you only have 100 euro, so it means that the first one is asking you more than what you have, and therefore you are not going to be able to help even if you want, because he needs 200 euros and you only have 100 euros. When the other one has maybe a less interesting debt to GDP and debt net ratio, but you only need 20 euros. So you will be able to help the other one. So that this example is showing that when we move from a world where we suppose that there is unlimited money available into a world where money is limited and, in fact, debt is bigger than the money available, then you get into a situation where those who have small needs will get better uh, support than those who have bigger needs. And uh, those who still think that we live in a world where money is unlimited should be uh, really thinking about what happened uh, 18 months ago when uh, Lehman Brothers collapsed and so on. If the banks were so much able to make unlimited money, none of the banks would have failed, none of the banks would have gone to the states saying, we need money otherwise we are going to die, and none of our states will be in such a deficit like they are now. So in fact, we do live in a world where there is not unlimited money available. I'm speaking with Frank Bianchi, Director of Research of the Global Europe Anticipation Bulletin. Today's show, From the Greek Tragedy to the Battle of the Bank of England and the U.S. Fed. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. You've written in the bulletin that the United States must find $5 trillion to borrow in 2010. Yeah. Do you anticipate a huge increase in interest rates to finance yeah, uh, sovereign and private debt? And, of course, then there, there's refinancing coming due, Of right? course. There is a combination of all that. And that's why, I mean, before going into the detail of that aspect, just going back to the Greek case, is there been such energy, so much energy put into trying to create a crisis out of the Greek situation or to make people believe that? Because there was a need to make a bubble extremely big media bubble to hide something very big which is behind. And uh, you will see after the May 6th British election how fast things are going to turn to what is really mattering uh, in the coming months. And this $5 trillion, which is the need for, for the U.S. To, to refinance or, or to finance 
the existing deficits or to refinance number of of, uh, of uh, loans and debts which are arriving at maturity and so on in the private and public sector. Uh, these five trillions are in fact uh, on, on on their own bigger than what is available right now on the on the financial markets. Uh, knowing that UK needs to do a lot as well, that France and Germany and Japan and, and so on and so on, everybody needs refinancing right now. And the Chinese have stopped uh, buying uh, T-bonds in big quantities. They are starting to, to have now uh, trade deficits as last month. And you know how they get the trade deficits. They just change their dollars into uh, iron uh, and all kind of materials they can buy anywhere so that they get uh, rid of their dollars and they get a trade deficit, which makes them uh, winning on the two sides. Uh, but one of the results that they have less and less money to recycle into T-bonds and into financing uh, U.S. deficits. So uh, it's, it's just a practical point. Uh, to, to the end of this year, the second part of this year, we'll see the results of the combination, and on one end, the big bank bailouts of last year combined with the need to make stimulus plans everywhere, which has put public finance into a complete state of disarray uh, all over the West. And as the economic recovery is not coming, then we have a very simple problem. Money has become uh, something which is in shortage worldwide. And therefore, you have a kind of what we call the velvet war, uh, which has been starting within the Western countries, between Eurozone, Japan, US, UK, and so on, because everybody is trying to get, uh, to get access or to grasp the available money. Right. Now, in, the, in your latest bulletin, uh, you're looking at two different trends for the second half of 2010. First of all, summer in 2010 with regard to Great Britain. What are you seeing happening there? The Battle of England. Uh, the new version of the Battle of England. Uh, but this time it will be around the Bank of England, not about around the country itself. Uh, well, in 10 days' time, if I'm not wrong, it's May 6th, uh, so that will be, in fact, about 10 days. Um, UK most probably will get into uh, one of the most difficult political situations of the past decades, uh, if not maybe uh, one century, with un parliament, no clear winners, therefore no clear decision about what to do, when at the same time the country is facing its biggest budget deficits of modern uh, history with a complete decaying economy and, and problem of a surging unemployment and so on and so on and so on. Uh, the British pound is already very weak. It has lost uh, value against every single major currency in the past uh, two years. Uh, this will be the situation, which means that the Bank of England, which has been buying something like 70 to 90 percent of the gills, the British, uh, uh, the UK government's bonds, in the past 12 months, uh, the British, the, the Bank of England will find itself uh, in a situation of being obliged to keep on buying uh, the gills because there is no way to finance the uh, public deficit which is growing. Uh, meantime, the British pound will be attacked even more because there will be no political stability, clear direction because of the hung parliament. And all that in the context of uh, what I was mentioning of uh, scarcity of available money to fund public deficits, 
and the UK facing uh, huge needs on short term to fund these deficits. So that's why I think summer will be extremely, extremely difficult uh, for UK. And what about winter 2010 with regard to the Fed? Well, that's the, uh, the second step of the story. Uh, for, for four years, we have been looking at this crisis as uh, a systemic crisis which was attacking uh, the pillars on which, uh, which were supporting the world to which we are, we are living since, uh, since 1945. The main pillar of this world is the U.S., and the secondary pillar has been the U.K., the kind of assistant uh, pillar to the U.S. for the past uh, 50 or 60 years. You can also look at it in another way. Essentially, if you look at the problems now, the UK looks like a detonator to the bigger bomb, which is the US one. And we think that summer will see the detonating factor in UK uh, exploding, which will trigger a few months later the explosion of the big US deficit bomb. Uh, the size of the, of the debt, the size of the deficit which has to be financed on short term, meaning by the end of this year or early 2011, is so big in the U.S. that the, the, the Fed has played games, uh, games in a way that they, they, they played uh, like in a casino because they had no choice. Uh, otherwise, the, the, the situation would have been even worse uh, uh, in the, the past 12 months. But they are now in a situation when if interest rates move up, and they will, Whatever the Fed wants or not doesn't make any difference because the question that money is not available in limited quantity in the world and everybody wants it right now. So when the uh, interest rates are going to go up, the Fed, which now is essentially has become kind of uh, mortgage funder because the Fed is having uh, more than one trillion dollar uh, uh, on its balance sheet, which are just linked with the mortgage industry because they, they have been bailing out uh, the, the whole mortgage industry in the country. They are taking a situation which, with interest rates moving up, they are going to, in fact, lose money making losses on their balance sheet because of the situation of people not refinancing because they've had previously more interesting uh, mortgage rates than the ones which are going to come in the next month. That will be making the Fed in a, put it in a very weak situation and, in fact, losing money, therefore asking for the Treasury to put money into the Fed in order to, to, uh, to face this, this hemorrhage of funds linked to the interest rates moving higher and the mortgage uh, in which the Fed now is uh, stuck up to the neck. And uh, that will create a situation where the Fed is really going to experience at the end of 2010 a situation where it really can fail uh, like any bank. And the only one who can bail it out is the Treasury. But knowing the situation of the Treasury right now, uh, due to the huge uh, deficit, public deficit in the U.S., we think that the winter 2010-2011 will show uh, what we call the explosion, in fact, of the U.S. bomb after the detonating one uh, of U.K. during summer. So you're saying, in effect, that the Fed could go bankrupt? Yes. The Fed is a bank. It's nothing else. And the bank, which has transformed its balance sheet into a balance sheet made of uh, complete uh, what we call ghost, uh, ghost assets. I mean, assets which have, in fact, uh, can call it toxic or whatever, assets which have either no value or value linked to uh, interest rates in a way that the Fed will lose money if interest rates move up in the coming months. Uh, and they will move up because 
everybody is searching to get the money uh, and therefore interest rates and we see that in many countries already Australia is moving up India is moving up China is moving up. everywhere they are, the money is getting uh, uh, interest rates are getting higher and there is no way the Fed can keep this, the situation with such a low rate available for people for a long time now, when you were speaking about the Fed in the winter of 2010-2011 with a possible bankruptcy there and rising interest rates, what is that going to look like for the United States? What, do you, what, what trends do you see developing here if, if that takes place? Well, first we see trends which are already developing and which are going to be part of this situation. Uh, we think the November election, uh, midterm election, are going to show probably a very surprising uh, political uh, landscape, uh, which uh, will see the emergence of uh, uh, forces and, and voters outside the classical uh, Democrat-Republican uh, bipartisan game of, of, the past, uh, of the past decades. Uh, the, the, it will also be interesting to, to see what we think is going to happen, which is a move of extremism uh, within the parties and outside the parties themselves. But we, we see that for, for the local, the, the social and political fabric of the U.S., the trends showing that something difficult and dangerous times are, are, are coming uh, in the coming one year or six months, one year and, and ahead, uh, are already there. The trends are already there. People are, are feeling that something is, is getting less and less uh, possible, not possible anymore to go on like, like it used to be. Then about the process, the way it will impact in the U.S., that is, uh, that is the big difficulty to see at that point. Uh, for instance, if we go back to the past, uh, we didn't imagine uh, when we were uh, saying that when in February 2008 we said September 2008 there will be uh, a big collapse in U.S. economy and so on. That happened with uh, Lehman Brothers and everything. But we didn't uh, foresee that the reaction will be that the, the federal system, I mean uh, the Fed and the government and so on, will put all the money available and even more than what was available into the banks which I believe was a crazy move, but it has been the move, uh, going beyond any historical precedent and putting everything available just into the black hole of the banks to try to prevent them to collapse. That is something we didn't foresee, because it was, well, uh, the crisis was absolutely without precedent, and the reaction of the authorities were also completely out of, uh, of norms. So we don't know exactly uh, which form it will take during the winter uh, of 2010-2011. We have certainly more, uh, more precise uh, ideas on that uh, by summer, when we will see the British case already moving forward. W one thing, though, is certain is that the, uh, socially and politically speaking, the, the tensions are going to be much and more bigger and bigger. Uh, we see with the tea parties and uh, with all this kind of uh, the, the revival of the militias and many other aspects that uh, there is, uh, I think it's one of the uh, Time magazine uh, editor or something in, in uh, CNBC, I think, or uh, interview recently said that Palin and the tea parties were about something like calling for secession to secede in the U.S., there is a growing confrontation between what is supposed to be the federal level, Washington, and so on, and the people 
at least part of the people. It will take different forms depending the state, depending the, the, the social uh, groups which are involved. But um, we think, and that's not new in our analysis, huh? uh, we think that this, the, the winter of 2010-2011 will see more and more uh, weaknesses appear into the, the, the fabric of the U.S. as a, as a country. I'm speaking with Frank Bianchi, Director of Research of the Global Europe Anticipation Bulletin. Today's show, From the Greek Tragedy to the Battle of the Bank of England and the U.S. Fed. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Um, there was a, a sort of a very brief comment uh, in the latest bulletin that caught my eye. It said, Leap E2020 believes it is unlikely there will be major military conflicts involving two or more major powers between now and 2013. So you see, like, war, for instance, taking place more uh, on a regional level. You don't see a big war brewing between major powers. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. No, no, we don't see any uh, major conflict which means that in involving the big, the big players before the, let's say, the, the middle of, of, of the decade. Uh, for, for several reasons. The first reason that at that stage, no political leadership in any of these big players is willing or searching for any direct confrontation. And these things uh, for the big players, uh, U.S. or China or Russia or else, uh, they, they need to have uh, you need to have a preparation. It, it doesn't start in one week. You have to prepare your population. You have to prepare a lot of things before getting into such big confrontations. And the leaders themselves, they are the um, uh, the heirs, the results of the past 20 years. So they, they are not in the mood of trying to to uh, to go for a fight on on a bigger scale. Uh, I don't think it will be the same situation for the leaders who are going to be elected or coming to power after 2014-15, because then we think that the, if the crisis has been going on like unfortunately it looks like. Uh, those leaders everywhere will be coming from a completely different kind of uh, intellectual background. Uh, much more, in many ways, much more convinced that uh, the world has become a, a zero-sum game where if you need something, you have to take it from your neighbor. And, uh, and that, that will make, in that second part of the, of the decade, certainly uh, this eventuality much much more likely, but not for us, not definitely in the first half of this decade. Oh, so that's interesting. So you see the the second half of uh, the decade is much more dangerous than now. Of course. I mean, the, 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 this decade is a transition decade. Um, if if we, I mean, uh, globally, uh, if the, the main countries, the main players in the world and so on are not able by, by the middle of this decade to have set up a new game, a new world game where all the players, new and old, big and small, can, can find a way uh, can find a way that they can work together and play together and, 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 and have their interests preserved while the common interest is preserved as well. If we can't build this new game, then uh, by the middle of this decade, people are, uh, many, many big players are going to try to find their own game. And, and the only game known in that case is that uh, everybody for itself and, uh, and the future will tell. 
Has there been a speculative attack on the euro? And if so, who is carrying out this attack? Well, the euro situation right now is the complex one because there have been, in fact, an attempt uh, to weaken the eurozone, but it's not that much a value of the euro which has been an attack. Uh, first, we should look at the value of the euro today. It's supposed to be weak, but in fact, it, uh, it is above 130 which were, uh, compared to the dollar, which was a level that uh, we were taken for crazy three years ago, and we're saying that it will reach that level. So, in fact, the, the level is not that weak in terms of uh, euro-dollar value. What we think is that the attack on Greece is much more linked on a way to try to break the eurozone, to try to, to see if the eurozone is really able to survive the coming uh, dangerous times which are going to come with, uh, with, the, with the, the British and, and U.S. Uh, uh, situation of the coming months and this uh, problem of access to, to funds uh, which are not limited anymore worldwide. Um, if I look at the way the euro was received uh, in, in the U.S. and in U.K. Uh, 10 years ago, I, I was uh, doing a lot of things over there in the, at that time. At first, in the U.S., as well in the U.K., people were not believing the euro would be able to exist. Then they were not, I mean, I mean the, the main decision makers huh, in the financial world or in the political world and so on. Then they, they believed it will be a weak currency. And then now we are in a situation where uh, a certain number of, of uh, big monetary zones or financial or economic actors, players, are fighting to get access to this limited amount of money which can fund their deficits uh, uh, in the coming years. And therefore, I think the Greek element has been used for, on one hand, hiding the fact that the bigger problems were, in fact, within the UK and the US. And the second element was to try to see if there was not a way to break the Eurozone by, for instance, having Germany uh, and the German refusing to uh, to support uh, and to to to, su to financially support the, the Greek uh, government, and a lot of speculation has been made on that, uh, which, in a way, I can understand why why some speculators or players, even why why some uh, officials uh, in in different positions in Washington or, or London could could think that, but essentially. It was a mistake, and it is a mistake because it is missing the point that the Europeans in Eurozone are making uh, the EU and the Euro for reasons which are going much deeper than, than short-term financial issues, and because we don't want to see our continent going back to wars like, uh, like we had in the 20th century. So that's why uh, these bets are absolutely going nowhere, like it was going nowhere 10 years ago to think the euro will not exist, or uh, seven years ago that it will be a weak currency. Um, but and I want to stress that point. I understand why some people in London or Washington could, or New York can play that. Uh, when we say that we are into a velvet war situation, we are into a war situation. Uh, the West is facing so huge public deficits in each of its components, Japan, UK, Eurozone, US, that, uh, well, uh, we may be supposed to be friends, but the question is that uh, some of us are going to, <laughs> to, to lose a lot because they will not get access 
to this limited amount of money, or they will not get sufficient access to this amount of money to prevent a bigger crisis in terms of economy or currency and so on of their, of their own. And uh, in that case, uh, people tend to be uh, much less friendly than uh, when everything is going well and money is available and the economy is booming and so on and so on. So that's uh, that's part of the of the background uh, which makes that the Greek case has been transformed into a Greek tragedy, uh, specifically in the British and the U.S. media. So then, of course, the problems in the eurozone generally are greatly exaggerated. Do you think we do have problems? I mean, it's true that we have public deficits in France, which are big, which are that Germany is also getting into some deficits now as well, and so on. But I mean, this is nothing um, uh, of, of a very big crisis uh, component for two reasons that we have underlined a long time ago in, our, uh, in the Gibbon. First, the Europeans are used to be taxed. So our governments will easily and are easily moving up all the tax rates everywhere because we have hundreds of years of, uh, of habits of being taxed as citizens and to pay for already pretty expensive social system and so on and so on. So the Europeans uh, don't have a kind of uh, uh, genetic uh, reaction against taxation like you, for instance, have in the U.S. And the second thing is that uh, the general economy of the Eurozone, its exports, its internal functioning, it's 70% of its, uh, of its trade is made inside the Eurozone. So it's, it's uh, something which is not seen outside because it is internal to the Eurozone. Uh, so this, all these dimensions make that the Eurozone is going to face problems, and it is facing problems, but essentially there is a wealth, how uh, is that in English, a wealth uh, basis which is big enough to absorb a big part of the shock, which is not the case in the UK. Not at all, because the UK is a country which has been uh, applying politics for uh, the past 20, 30 years, which makes that his, his middle class is uh, uh, already in a very uh, poor situation of, uh, of a very big endowment of uh, the consumer and so on are in debt uh, up to the neck even more than the US. That's also another element that the, uh, the consumers and the uh, households in, on the Eurozone are much less indebted than, than uh, in the UK and the US. So, I mean, all that makes that there are troubles, there are difficulties, but they are in a way, they are in a proportion of which can be called manageable. Uh, and the needs for, for the public deficit is not of the same magnitude as it is in the UK and the US. The last point, uh, which I think is also very important to understand for when, when you look at Europe since from the US, for instance, in our case, and that's something I, I very often told to audiences in the U.S., that there has always been a big difference between the U.S. and Europe uh, in the EU, is that for the Europeans, we know that we don't know the future of our uh, common entity because it is something which is very uncertain, and, and we know we have to, to build it every day because nobody knows what the EU will be in, uh, in five years or ten years and so on. While in the U.S. there was a kind of uh, feeling, and I would say intellectual complacency, but uh, because it was, there was no need till, uh, till recently to think otherwise, that uh, the future will be just bright and as good as uh, the past, recent past was. So when the Europeans are being put into a uh, big difficulty, like for instance the Greek case, 
the way they have been reacting can be called uh, lengthy, difficult. Uh, they have been arguing, but that's part of, uh, of the EU is to argue constantly between these different components. But the result has been that they have managed to create a mechanism to help Greece. And more than that, after 10 years, and we have been advocating that for many years, of nothing happening in terms of economic governance of the Eurozone, they have finally agreed that by the end of the year, they are going to add a number of tools which are absolutely required for a good governance of the Eurozone. And these tools were not there because for years, Europeans could not move because there was no any crisis, any shock, enabling them to move forward. So what I mean by this example is that uh, when you look at what's going on in the Eurozone or in the EU, you have to look always to the fact that there is an issue, a problem, a difficulty, a crisis, a shock, whatever, and to see whether the answer, which can take some time, but whether the answer is improving the existing system or not. Because if it does, then it proves that the shock was a beneficial one. If it doesn't, then the shock will be, in fact, a crisis. And our analysis of the way uh, the Greek case has been treated by the EU right now, by the Eurozone right now, is a positive one because the Eurozone is finally building and acting in a way it should have done uh, or prepared itself for many years, though it didn't have. In the US right now, my feeling is that uh, there is a kind of anesthesia which has been obtained by the Fed by, by boosting the financial markets, and that the fact that Wall Street has been up for the past uh, 10, 10 or 12 months makes that people tend to be complacent uh, again, uh, at least in the, in the, in the mainstream uh, medias or politicians and so on, while in fact the only reason why Wall Street has been up is because the Fed has put so much money into uh, the economy that most of it went into the bank and then into Wall Street. Frank Biancari, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Bonnie. I've been speaking with Frank Biancari. Today's show has been From the Greek Tragedy to the Battle of the Bank of England and the U.S. Fed. Frank Biancari is Director of Research and Coordinator of the Global Europe Anticipation Bulletin. Visit the Bulletin's website at www.leap2020.eu. That's L-E-A-P, the numbers 2020.eu. Mr. Biancari is also Director of Research at LEAP Europe 2020, the European Laboratory of Political Anticipation. Europe 2020 is dedicated to anticipating European political developments and was developed in partnership with many different organizations, including research centers and individual researchers. The Europe 2020 website provides support to innovative initiatives aimed at upgrading the European Union's capacity to face 21st century challenges. Visit their website at www.europe2020.org. That's Europe, the numbers 2020.org. Frank Biancari has been chosen by the Spanish EU presidency as one of 14 Europeans who, as one of the fathers of the European Erasmus program, changed our world during the last 20 years. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yaramako. To leave comments or order copies of shows, email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K.
KNER at yahoo.com. Are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now, if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will stand and divided we will fall because love conquers all. You understand what I'm saying? This is a call to all you sleeping souls. Wake up and take control of your own cipher. And be on the lookout for the spirit snipers.